0: Thank you, Nancy, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany as we gather together and complete the series in Philippians. I'll remind you that this Wednesday evening is not only Valentine's Day, but it's Ash Wednesday. And so we do have a service here uh, as we enter into the Lenten season, and then next Sunday we begin a series on Psalm 23, which I'm very excited about as we walk together through that time. So let's take a moment, we'll pray together, and then we'll look at the scripture. Father, thanks that we can gather here this morning Thank you so much that you desire to teach us and shape us to be people of contentment uh, out from which flows uh, nothing less than your life, Father, your joy and hope and mercy and generosity flowing out of that source of you into our world. And I pray, Father, that you'd speak to each of us now by the power of your Holy Spirit, giving us ears to hear, hearts to respond, shaping us to be people of both contentment and hope, and we'll thank you for it. We pray in Christ's name. (coughs) Amen. All of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. That's a quote from Blaise Pascal, who was, I think, a scientist of some sort, but also a bit of a theologian, actually. Our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. There's a group of research uh, psych students at University of Virginia who were doing a study. They hadn't heard of this quote, but their their study was this, I wonder how well someone could sit quietly in a room alone. They were asking that question, and uh, so they had gathered participants in their study, men and women, and if you picture, uh, someone comes in and there's a room, and there's nothing in the room but a chair, and they're invited to sit in a chair for ten minutes quietly, just with their thoughts. The only other thing in the room is a button that they can push. And if they push, if they push the button, they get they get shocked. Actually, so uh, picture the study. You come in, you sit in a the chair. Uh, there's nothing in the room. The the participants say, "What's that button?" And the researcher says, "Do you really want to know?" "Yeah, I really want to know." They push the button. It's a painful shock. Like it really hurts. And then the researcher says, uh, would you be willing to pay money to not be shocked again? Everyone said, absolutely. I don't want to be shocked again. So, now the study begins. This is what they found. Sitting 10 minutes alone, 25% of women began fiddling with a button and shocking themselves. 25%. (laughs) Now, Say gets even more interesting. 70% of men did the same thing. <laughs> 70%. That's its whole, that's a whole sermon series right there <laughs> about gender identity and all kinds of things, but we don't, that's not this this morning the point. The point this morning is simply to say it is immensely difficult for us to be content simply in ourselves. Really a challenge. And so Paul here in this uh, section, closing Philippians, articulates uh, really practices, three of them, that ground him so deeply in Christ that he's able to live this life of joy and contentment that is transcendent of every circumstance. He can be content, rich, poor, hungry, full, in any circumstance. So what are the three practices, that's what we're looking at this morning, they're simple. Paul says in this text, I learn, I receive, and I rejoice. Three things. Three things that, if practiced on a regular basis, will enable us as well to find contentment in any and every circumstance and to have nothing less than Christ's life flowing out of us. And so we want to look at that and consider that this morning, beginning with this. First thing that Paul says, first observation, first practice. Paul says, I learn. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. Uh, Not that I speak from want. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in I know how to get along with humble means and how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, and then he says again, I have learned the secret of being filled, going hungry, having abundance, suffering, need. Twice Paul says this, I have learned. And what has he learned? He's learned... Uh, contentment. And so I have three observations for you here regarding contentment because Paul is learning about contentment. First observation, very simple. Without contentment, we are ever in pursuit of something out there. Does that make sense? Like until I'm content, I, I tend to have a paradigm through which I live my life that says uh, I've, got another, I've got to conquer another mountain. I've got, to, I've got to climb higher. I've got to go faster. I've got to, I've got to make more money. I need more security. I need lower blood pressure. I need whatever it is that I need. And, and, and many of us are this way. I have a, I have a ski app, and so when I ski, I flip this thing on, and it tells me how far I went, and the steepest slope, and how fast I went, and it, it keeps track, I have years now of record of this, right, and it's fun to a point, but it actually becomes an unhealthy obsession, right? And my wife will be skiing with me, and we'll be, you know, going up, And I'll I'll pull out the app after a rundown, and I'll go, oh, man, I only went 45 miles an hour. I want 50. I want 50. And it's beautiful out, and it's fun, and it's enough, and it's not enough. I must have more. Uh, Do you understand what I'm saying? So Paul is saying here, look, uh, without contentment, we're ever in pursuit of something else, And once you meet a goal, then what do you tend to do? Raise the bar yet again, and yet again, and yet again. This is an exercise in uh, futility, is what Paul is saying. And in fact, James says it this way, very practical and somewhat indicting when he just kind of flies above culture in general and says, hey, what do you think is the source of all quarrels, all conflicts? Here's what it is. It's the war that is being waged inside your own humanity and your members. What does that mean? This is what it means. You want and don't have. So you go after it. You want property, you don't have it, you go after it. You want what somebody else has, you don't have it, you go after it. You want a job, you go after it. And Paul is saying here, and James, there's a danger In so perpetually going after the next big idea, the next big thing, that we are unable to live content in this moment right now, sitting in a chair. (laughs) So without contentment, we're ever in pursuit, and that's a problem, actually. Second observation, contentment must be learned. Twice, Paul says this, I've learned the secret. The the phrase shows up, I've learned the secret twice, and, and actually the phrase is legitimately translated this way, I have been initiated into the secret of contentment. How many have participated in an init- initiation in here? Anybody in the room? Like in a, in a dorm or in a, you know, whatever, an initiation. Well, here's the thing about initiations. Initiations are always rooted in what? Experience, they're always rooted in experience. No one, uh, uh, hey, welcome to the dorm, sign this agreement, that's, an init- that's not an initiation. An initiation is you're naked and locked in the elevator, and somebody pushes every button, and then you have to be embarrassed. That's an initiation, right? So initiation is a thing. Like I like I can't until I experience it. I'm not transformed. That's what Paul is saying here. So here, what is he saying in this text? He's saying I've learned the secret. In other words, Paul is saying you only learn to live well in the midst of hunger when what? When you're hungry the only way you can learn you only learn to live well in the midst of cold when you're cold you only learn to find contentment in prosperity or poverty by experiencing prosperity and poverty and so the takeaway here so beautifully articulated by the poet Rainier Rilke is this let everything happen to you like don't be afraid don't live an insular life whereby like the the, the primary paradigm of your life is to avoid suffering don't do that the primary goal of your life is not to avoid suffering. The primary goal of your life is to live faithful. And when you live faithful to your calling, understand that that fidelity will at times lead you to to poverty, at times uh, uh, to wealth, at times to health, at times to sickness, at times to popularity and, and, and notoriety, at times to being vilified. Don't worry about it. Just live faithfully. Have this one goal to follow Christ closely and do the will of God, and that will take you places you would never have chosen, and yet in those places you will learn things that you can't learn without going there. This is why as a pastor, I can say to you, many people have said to me, I would, never have, I would never wish cancer on anyone, but I'm thankful for what God did in me in the midst of cancer. I would never wish that anyone would go through divorce, but I'm thankful for all that I learned, for all that God taught me. Yes, it was difficult. Yes, it was the depths. Yes, it was dark. And I clung to God as never before. Does this make sense to you? And so God is saying, look, don't, don't think that the insular life is the richest life possible and also you don't have to go looking for suffering just know that in living faithfully to God suffering will find you and in living in a fallen world suffering will find you aging will find you betrayal will find you fine what is God teaching me here? Uh, when I was studying architecture there's this kind of camaraderie among the students it's a competitive program down in California Cal Poly one, of, one quarter I had to make a, 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 like a different creative project every week and make a, a, a folder of these projects. And, and so I had this and it would, it would serve me well later in like career paths and that kind of thing as part of my resume. And uh, a year later, somebody wanted to borrow the project because they had the same class and they didn't know exactly what was required and they literally cut stuff up in my project and stole it and used it in their project. And so I went to retrieve my little portfolio and it was annihilated, right? Like this is a, this is a great moment for learning contentment. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> Like, would, would I choose this? No. Did I want to kill this person? Yes, for a moment I did. And, and at some point, like, I have to, I have to learn how, I, I can only learn how to respond to being treated unjustly by what? By being treated unjustly. There's no school other than the school of life. That's what Paul is saying. I've been, in, not, I've learned contentment theologically, I've been initiated into contentment. How? Cold, hungry, beaten up, in prison, wildly popular at times as well. At big parties and banquets, full, hungry, all of it. (laughs) And and what I've experienced, all of it, I begin to see, ah, you know what matters most? And now I've learned it. So so contentment must be learned is the second thing. Without contentment, we're ever in pursuit. Contentment must be learned. Third, the most profound source of contentment, intimacy with God. There's no question. Psalm 1 like the deer is thirsty for water. That's how I'm thirsting for you, says David. Psalm 63.1, my soul thirsts for God. Psalm 62, one: my soul waits for God only. And then my, one of my favorite verses in all the Psalms, Psalm 73.25, listen to this. It's so convicting and challenging. Who do I have in heaven but you? Rhetorical question. And having you, I desire nothing else. Like Christ is enough. Not Christ plus Christ. I, that's powerful to me. Uh, Moses illustrates this, in my opinion, several times in his ministry. Moses had been charged with uh, leading the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt uh, through the wilderness. Ultimately, the the intended goal, the promised land, he never got there. But uh, uh, a short period, actually, into this ministry... Bo was very discouraged. He was up on a mountain receiving the Ten Commandments in stone tablets, if you know the story, and then God says, "Hey, get down there. Every, the people have gone crazy down below right and and they've there's this kind of rebellion going on, and they've made a new God, and, and they said, we're going to appoint a new leader, we're going to go back to Egypt, and they're all worshiping this God. Moses goes down the mountain, he's really mad, he takes the tablets, he, gr- he breaks them up, he grinds them up into, into powder, he puts the powder in water, and, and he makes everybody drink the water that has rocks in it, and he wags his finger, you know, yeah, and some people die, it's a long story, but he's mad, he's mad. And he goes back up the mountain. He says, I'm going to go back up there and talk to God, you know. He goes back up there, up there on the mountain. This is what he says, Exodus 33, 15. This is so powerful to me. Uh, he says to God, like he, he defend, like he had prayed, God, don't abandon these people. Like your reputation's on the line here if you abandon these people. God says, okay, I'll be merciful. I'll, you know, you'll continue on your journey. You'll get to the promised land. But then Moses says this, as a prayer. God, if your presence doesn't go with us, do, then don't lead us up from here because the most important thing is not the goal. The most important thing is who is with me. That is foundational to Moses' life and I hope to yours. Like if Christ is with you existentially, experientially, if, he, if you can say and mean it, Jesus is my best friend, you're pretty free. <laughs> and that's Moses. Like, he doesn't need. You know Maslow's hierarchy of needs? At the top is what? Does anyone know? Self-actualization. Whatever. Don't have time for that this morning. (laughs) I'd challenge that, but we'll do it later, okay? That's at the top. What's at the bottom of the thing? Does does anyone remember? Hey, the basics, man. Food, shelter, clothing. You don't have that, you don't have nothing. So it starts there. This is... I would say, no, it doesn't. Go one step deeper. Like, what really is bedrock? Who do I have in heaven but you? Having you, I desire what? Nothing else. And so, like, at the bedrock, I want relationship with God. I want Jesus my best friend. I want intimacy with my creator. Who lives that way? I'll I'll tell you who. People who are hungry for Jesus. Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What? They'll be filled. Oh, well, who hungers? I'll tell you who hungers. People whose hands are empty. That's who hungers. In other words, people who have known a little bit of brokenness in their lives, they're, they're the ones who hunger. Like Moses had a reputation as knowing God. He knew God face to face. That's what God says about him. Knew God face face. Nobody else, says God, but Moses. He knew me face to face. Oh, yeah, and by the way, he was a murderer and a fugitive living in the desert, and a man with a failed vision, and a man who was cut off from both his biological and adopted families. Uh, he, uh, he was a man in need. And so, like, when my hands are empty, now I'm open to receiving all that God wants to give me. So, uh, are you going through a hard time? Yeah, I get that it's painful. But I'm trying to offer you some hope here this morning that it's precisely when our hands are empty that we come to know God as best friend, God as father, intimate relationship. So, so first thing, I learn contentment. Second thing, I receive from others. And what Paul had received really literally was a financial gift. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, verse 10 that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity, he says. So they've taken an offering for Paul. And this is actually, this is why Paul wrote the letter. The letter really is a thank you note regarding provision, right? Prisoners in Rome uh, were not provided for. Like they didn't, they, unless they had money, they couldn't buy food. So if you're a prisoner, the, the, the state doesn't provide food you have to give the state money for them to provide food. So if someone didn't have a social network, uh, they could starve in prison. Well, uh, Paul's social network in this particular case was the church at Philippi. He had founded the church. They heard he was in prison. They took a very generous offering, and they sent this guy Epaphroditus to deliver the offering. So what what Paul's saying here, like if you go down to verse 18 of chapter 4, it's pretty interesting. I'll, I'll begin in 17. I don't seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. In other words, I'm grateful that you're giving. And, verse 18, I've, and I've received everything in full. I have abundance. I'm amply supplied. In other words, you gave the offering, and I'm, and I'm fully supplied, and he says, uh, look, I didn't seek the gift. I'm glad you gave it, but I didn't seek it. Because I'm able to, I'll find contentment. But here's what he's saying. He's saying to the Philippians, understand, look, you're the agency of provision. And thank you for that. Thank you for being the agency of provision. However, though you are the agency of provision, this is Paul. He makes it very clear, Philippians 4. You're the agency, but you're not what? The source of provision. You're not. (laughs) It's really interesting. The source of provision, God, in Paul's mind. The, yes, it came through the Philippians, but the source, God. Hey, let's make an application. Who's your source of provision? Amazon, Boeing, Starbucks, dividends, your degree, the insane appreciation on your house. Like what's your, like what's your source of provision? Like why do you rest at night if you rest? Your degree. Paul is demonstrating. That contentment comes to those who see God as the source. Yes, there are agencies. But, but behind the agency, there's a source, and the source is God. And here's the deal. Uh, when people are not dependent on particular agencies, they can survive in any circumstance. Does, it, does that make sense? They're able to thrive in any circumstance because they've developed a confidence that the source... For fulfilling whatever it is that they're called to do and be in Christ, the source will provide for them exactly what they need. Paul says, look, I can do everything through Amazon who makes a deposit. No, I can do everything through Christ who, what? Strengthens me. All that I need for all that I'm called to do comes through the resurrected Jesus who lives in me. That's what Paul says. So I want to kind of reframe our thinking so that we understand the source of our provision is not our employer, or our education, or our assets. The source of our provision always is Christ. And what's interesting is if my source is anything other than Christ, then my hands are like this. I'm gripping the source. And then I'm afraid of losing my job and, and, and are afraid of the investments and what, you know, what happens in the markets and that kind of thing. And so now I'm living in a sense of an, a state of anxiety because like, I'm dependent on this wrong source, But if watch this, if my hands are empty, then there's one question. What does God want me to do? And it's liberate, it's so liberating. Just ask, well, what does God want? Should I do this? Should I not do this? And realize that if I'm called to do it, God will what? Provide for it. Does that that make sense? In our own story, my wife and I, we learned a little bit of this when I graduated from seminary because I was finishing uh, seminary in Los Angeles, and uh, had an opportunity to stay in Los Angeles and work. I had a job offer at a church, kind of full time. And at the time, uh, the compensation for a, at least for a pastor was good compensation. I mean, it's Los Angeles, you know, and yeah, it was good. And so, uh, and Donna's pregnant, and it's the only job offer, the only one. And we prayed. It was like we were. We knew that we weren't called to stay in that city. We just knew it and I think it's been proven true, I'm not LA. It just would never have worked. (laughs) So we knew, and we said, so I had to say, you know what, thank you, really generous offer, no. And then there's nothing. You know, and Donna's this, you know, growing. And what are we doing? And I'm cleaning carpets, it's all good, it'll work out. And And then this church calls from San Juan Island and says, hey, we want you to, you know, come be an interim pastor for six months and um, here's your salary and it was meager I mean it was meager and they said oh but there's a don't worry we have a trailer you can live in and uh, you qualify for free cheese and milk right <laughs> so it's like <coughs> and and but the, like the question on the table for us anyway was is this right I do you hear me Like, that's the question. That's the one question. And for me, it's always been the question about any speaking as well, by the way. Like, just going out. It's not like, "Mm, who cares? It's not the thing. I've spoken in churches, and I remember once being in a church, and uh, there were like eight people in the room, and... And uh, the pastor got up at the end. And he says, now, you know, you want to help Richard out with some gas money, some lunch money, or something like that. There's going to be a little basket here. Just leave something. Because he's got to drive all the way back up to the mountains, you know. And, and so then I'm talking to the eight people. And when it's over, I go to this basket. Six bucks, right? Which is like 20 nuggets and a dollar for gas. <laughs> so I'm okay. It's all going to work out, right? But the, here's the point. The point in the moment is this. When my hands are empty, like I absolutely believe God's going to provide. Whatever, whatever I need, God will provide. We sing it, but the only way we know it is to really actually have empty hands. And begin to reframe our brain and our heart so that we understand God as a source. Second big question here, are you able to receive? Like Paul is able to receive an offering. And Paul has a paradigm. He articulates it most clearly in 2 Corinthians 8. But his paradigm is this. Look, All of us throughout our life will vacillate, even moment to moment, between being what? The giver and the receiver. All of us will, you need to learn to give and give generously. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, when you give generously, tomorrow someone else will give generously to you. And so often our paradigm is, oh, I'm afraid to give generously because I'm not inclined to receive and so I don't give and then I don't receive and then I'm isolated. But if we give generously and learn to receive generously in humility, the receiving is as, is as transformative as the giving, is what Paul is saying. And so he's saying, look, I'm receiving this gift with gratitude from you. Thank you for your generosity. Another day I will give. And in fact, Paul is actually giving in the letter he's giving in a different way. And so there's a giving and receiving that, 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 that needs to always happen. Um, some of us in the room having grown up in kind of this Western individualistic paradigm, have a very difficult time receiving. And actually, the further west you go in the United States, the, the greater we are, you know, self-made and independent. And a little bit the further north as well. And so, oh, by the way, where are we? <laughs> Northwest. <laughs> There's nobody more independent than us. So, and that makes it very difficult for some of us uh, to receive. And I'm not just talking about money here. I'll share with you one story. Um, I've taken to watching this show. My wife and I now are watching this show called This Is Us. Has anyone watched this show? Oh gosh. I don't know why we started doing this. It feels masochistic actually because you watch and you kind of cry. But there's a lot of things in the story that are very real for me. My dad died when I was 17, right? And I'm adopted. And so like there's, a, I'm not black, but I'm adopted. And so it's all, there's just a lot of things anyway. So um, why was I telling you that? Oh yeah. <laughs> because uh, my dad died when I was 17 and it was, there was a huge hole, a huge hole in my life that I said at the time, no one will ever fill. No one, there, I'll never have a dad. And then, uh, you know, every moment after, like high school graduation, college graduation, first child, I mean, I would weep at the end. Like, I'd go home after the celebration, I'd cry. Because there's a hole. No, no one can fill it. And then, you know, I got married, and my, my father in law, like, I, ha- I learned to receive a new dad. I learned it. And there's a moment, I remember it. Uh, we had moved to Friday Harbor. I bought this little, um, little inflatable raft at a garage sale and would go out to Egg Lake and fish for bass in the evenings. And my, so my father-in-law had taught me to fish for bass when he lived in California. So uh, they moved up uh, to Anacortes and anyway, I remember one night, they're on the island and I go out in the raft and he's on shore fishing and he was like, let's see who gets the most, right? And so I'm fishing, and I caught three or four bass, and I had them, and then, you know, the sun goes down, and I remember, I'll never forget, I row in, and you guys haven't met my father-in-law, he's passed away, but uh, he, he had a bucket there, and he looked at me kind of like I'd won, but then he starts picking up the stringer. one, two, three, four, five, six. Seven, and the last one was gigantic. <laughs> and he has this sick grin on his face. <laughs> but I'll never forget this. It brought tears to my eyes then. He goes, I'm not done teaching you. I'm not done teaching you. And that was, that was poetic. Not just fishing, huh, life. I got to receive from sources that maybe I'm too proud to receive from. But if my hands are empty, I'm more likely to receive. Finally, he says, I rejoice. And, and, and the conclusion here, of the book is infused with joy. I mean, in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord regarding your offering. Verses 11 to 13, uh, he says, uh, basically, punchline verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when Paul says I can do all things through Christ, he's juxtap- juxtaposing this tremendous confidence With 2 Corinthians 3, 5, where Paul says what? We're not adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. So on the one hand, what's Paul saying? He says, look, in and of myself, I can do what? Nothing. I can't do anything to fulfill the life for which I'm created. I am bankrupt. But now, this is what I love. If I'm bankrupt, my hands are what? Empty. And when my hands are empty, I will then receive all that Christ is. And when I receive all that Christ is, Then I will have a fullness and a confidence and a courage that I would never have had had I depended on the feebleness of my education, my personality, my bank account. No, empty hands allow me to be filled with Christ. And when I'm filled with Christ, the answer, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's amazing to me. So, and then he turns the table and says, look, if Christ has provided for me, verse 19, I'm confident that even in the midst of your generosity, you too will never lack anything you need to fulfill the calling God's given you. And then he brings kind of a punchline home to to show how the whole letter is joy. In verse 22, he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Uh, That's amazing. And here's why. If you return to chapter 1, verses 12 to 14... You discover that when Paul is imprisoned in Rome, uh, there, he says, my imprisonment has resulted in the cause of Christ being heard throughout the empire. Well, how is it that, that the gospel would expand throughout the empire when he's confined to a single room? How, like, what's up with that? And the, and the answer is in this, in this phrase... All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, because here we can kind of put the pieces together and see what happened. When Paul was imprisoned in Rome, uh, he was attached, like physically attached, most believe, to um, uh, someone charged with guarding him. He was under house arrest, but to make sure he didn't go anywhere, he was chained to a guy, and the guy to whom he was chained would have been part of the Praetorian Guard and if you know a little bit about Roman history, you know that the Praetorian Guard was Caesar's personal bodyguard unit. So these are like high-level, I think Navy SEALs or something like that, they're like high-level uh, uh, pr- uh, military. Caesar's personal bodyguard unit assigned not only to guard Caesar, but to guard um, uh, high-intensity, high-visibility prisoners, which was Paul. So if I'm, a, if I'm part of the Praetorian Guard, Half the time, I'm guarding Caesar's household, like secret service. And some of the time, I'm literally chained to Paul. Now, if you're chained to Paul, who's the real prisoner? (laughs) Right? And of course, the answer would be, (laughs) uh, at least at a level, the guard is the prisoner. Because here's what happened. Paul, as he does, is sharing Christ, and he's sharing Christ with the guard, and guards now seeing his joy, seeing his confidence, seeing his contentment. <clears throat> He's probably singing songs, you know. They, they're seeing this. I want that. And, and, and now they're coming to Christ, and, and now they're assigned to Caesar's household, and they're sharing Christ in Caesar's household, so that when Paul writes his final note, he says, oh, by the way, uh, the saints in Caesar's household greet you. The gospel has extended to the highest office in the land. Why? Because I'm in prison. Boom. And in this, what does Paul say? I rejoice. Wow. Really? Rejoice? Paul's life didn't turn out in any way what he'd envisioned. Uh, Pay attention. (laughs) He wanted ministry among the Jews. Where does he end up living? Uh, Ministry of the Gentiles. He wanted to be well-received wherever he went, as we all do, then he was stoned in one place, run out of the city, stoned left for dead, not, not, like unconscious. He was beaten times without number. Five times he received 39 lashes because 40 is illegal, it could kill you. He wanted to be free. Now he's been unjustly accused by the Jews, tossed back and forth between the legal system of Judaism and the empire. And he's under house arrest in Rome. He wants to keep living, but he writes in this letter, likely written about uh, AD 62 that on a daily basis, he doesn't know whether he's going to make it through the day without being executed. (laughs) And he wrote this letter in 62, and it likely, 64 AD, is when he actually was executed, uh, beheaded. Yeah, great life, huh? Actually, yes, great life. And, And he was able to write, in spite of every setback, every disappointment, every dissonance between his goal and reality, he was able to write this, in this, I rejoice. Man, we'd look at him and we'd say, you gotta learn how to set goals better, buddy, because you didn't reach any of your goals. So there's gonna be a seminar, and you know, we're gonna get together, we're gonna scale back a little bit, you know, less big, less hairy, no, hey, listen. You know what Paul is saying? Paul is saying, go ahead, try it. set set goals, think big, no problem. And when life makes a dissonance between what you wanted and what you have, God is there, and, and Christ can be revealed. And in fact, not just revealed, magnified in that. Because here's the deal with Paul. He could have been bitter, right? Oh, man, look what I want. I thought life would be this way. It's that. It's happened to all of us. He could have played the victim card. He could have blamed people around him by circumstances as a result of other people, they don't get it, not bitter, not victim. Instead, he just changed the world, that's all. We're, you know, studying him for five weeks, 2,000 years after his death. How did he come into that? Well, he learned to be connected to the source of contentment so that he could say Psalm 73 and mean it. "Who do I have in heaven but you? and having you, I desire what? Nothing else. Christ is enough. That's the life I want to live. How about you? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Joy without contingency. You know, in your bulletin, uh, there's a thing down at the bottom where it says response. You read Philippians 1.18 and it says, my unsought situation. Paul had many. Wanted to minister to Gentiles. Didn't. Wanted to be well-received. Wasn't. Wanted to be free. Wasn't. Wanted to live a long life. Didn't. I'm just going to ask you this morning, what's your unsought situation? Like, what what is in your life right now that you would not have chosen? Aging parents? A child wild? A health issue? A money issue? A commute issue? A housing issue? An addiction issue? Like, what's... You didn't want it. I was just gonna ask you, would you name it on here? My unsought situation? And then here's the deal. There's a prayer following. After you've named it, here's the deal. Thank you, God, for how you can use this for more Christ to be formed in me. Teach me to rejoice in your capacity to reveal life even here in the unsought situation. Amen. Uh, we're gonna in a moment, we're gonna receive the offering at the end, because this was a sermon sort of generosity. We received the offering at the end. And then, uh, as well, once the offering has gone by, my encouragement to you, having filled these out, would be to tear it off and bring it up and leave it here. And you can, there's others up here already from the earlier service, but you can not only leave it, but read the others that are here. This is how we testify to one another. We're too big to do it in another way. But it's powerful what God is doing through unsought situations as we learn to thank God for them. So fill, fill this out, bring it forward at some point during the next two worship songs, and, and then we'll close together. As the ushers come, will you join me in prayer? Father, I want to thank you so much that you, all through this letter, you've invited us to the example of Paul to live a life without contingencies. And now we look at this moment in the close, we look at our own unsought situations, family, health, money, geography, secret sins, whatever it is, uh, we want to bring it to you now, Father, and teach us to thank you, not for the thing, but for how in your amazing wisdom you can use the thing to both transform us and further your purposes in the world. We'd like to learn to thank you for that. Take us there now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.